overnight cooler temperatures, higher humidity, aided firefighters in their efforts towards containment. In fact, containment numbers on a number of fronts have increased. As you look at our statewide fire map, you can see there are still about two dozen major wildfires burning across California, but containment numbers are up. I'll start with some of the bigger fires, specifically around the Bay Area, the North Bay fires, uh, the LNU Lightning Complex, over 350,000 acres burned there, but that fire now 15% contained. Good progress being made, especially over here in Sonoma County on the Wallbridge fire, where there had been some evacuations in the community of Healdsburg. Good progress continuing to be made there as well. As we go down into the East Bay, uh, just to the east of uh, San Jose, uh, this series of fires called the SEU Lightning Complex has now burned over 360,000 acres, uh, all in total 15% containment. And down in the South Bay in the Santa Cruz Mountains, uh, here is the CZU Lightning Complex. Uh, oh, just about 80,000 acres burned in total here, 17% containment. On this fire and on actually several of them, a number of evacuations have actually been lifted and even downgraded uh, to evacuation warnings. Again, these are just three of the major complexes, but uh, firefighters have been responding to really, if you look at the last couple, uh, the last week and a half or so, uh, over 650 new fires since this lightning siege has started. Let's talk a little bit about the weather. Uh, as I go here to this forecast that shows us our temperatures, we're going to start to continue to see temperatures go up. So while we've had more favorable weather, which we've taken advantage of and continue to make progress, temperatures are going to be on the rise. As you can see, uh, we are going to return back to a warming and drying trend. Uh, for today, though, we are going to see isolated thunderstorms, uh, specifically up in the upper portion of northern California uh, along the northern Sierra, just north of Lake Tahoe. With these thunderstorms, there is the potential for lightning with little to no rainfall. So the Weather Service, uh, National Weather Service has issued a red flag warning uh, pretty much from above Eagle Lake, so Lassen County, all the way down in the northeastern portion of the state, down into uh, the uh, Lake Tahoe Basin. So this portion of California under a red flag warning for potential thunderstorms, so elevated fire risk in that region. Now, uh, over 13,000 lightning strikes have occurred since this lightning siege started, which was Saturday, August 15th. In the past 24 hours, there were 233 lightning strikes. There have already been several fires reported out of those, but nothing like we saw when the siege uh, first started. Let's go back real quick to our statewide fire map and just see uh, all of the fires on here. In total, uh, over 1.25 million acres have burned so far in this lightning siege since, again, August 15th. That number of acres is equivalent to over the size of the state of Delaware, just to put it into perspective. Uh, we're continuing to hit it hard, over 14,000 firefighters battling these fires. There has been death and destruction. I'm sad to report that there have been seven fatalities fighting these fires, uh, four of them, excuse me, five of them on the LNU Lightning Complex, one on the Hills Fire in Fresno County, and one on the CZU uh, Lightning Complex. Now, uh, the Sheriff's Department in a number of counties continuing uh, to uh, look for uh, additional missing individuals, uh, and so there is the potential that that number of fatalities could go up. Damage assessment is ongoing. Uh, our damage assessment teams have been able to verify that 1,400 structures 
have been destroyed by these fires. Uh, in fact, uh, the, uh, the, no the uh, number of structures now destroyed uh, in the LNU Lightning Complex, which is over 900, does put it as the 14th most destructive fire. So very destructive. Now, our preliminary assessments indicate that that number could rise in total to over 3,000 structures. So we are busy trying to uh, get that information and provide that to the public. Uh, there is nothing more stressful for evacuees than to know whether or not their home was able to survive the wildfire. And we're trying to provide that information uh, as quickly as possible. Let's go back, though, to our weather forecast. I mentioned the red flag warning in effect again for the northeastern portion and the Tahoe Basin. High fire danger here. Air quality, though, is going to be very bad. You can see unhealthy across much of Northern California. The reason for that, obviously, the smoke. Uh, this graphic will continue to show uh, as the day progresses and as it resets. Uh, you'll see right now, this is this morning, how bad and how unhealthy the air quality is but that smoke starts to dissipate as the day goes on. So that is the good news. So we could see a little bit of better smoke, uh, excuse me, a little bit better air quality throughout later of the day. Of course, if you have asthma or uh, other health uh, issues, stay indoors, do your best, uh, because it will be another smoky day across Northern California. I want to end here with uh, reminding you we need your help. Be sure you are preparing for wildfires, have an evacuation uh, set now with a little bit of uh, good news as progress is made. We're continuing to brace though for a rest of the busy summer and into the fall months. So if you have not already, make sure you are planned. You can get that at readyforwildfire.org. All the things you need to think about before a fire strikes your area. For now though, that's the latest on the fire situation burning in California. I'm Danny Berlant. Please have a fire safe day. Now sisters and brothers, we know we got over by the blood, the sweat, and the tears of sheroes and heroes, some whose names we know and some whose names we do not know. But I will tell you something, we have been here before. Now the only difference is we got some company, Rev. We got our gay lesbian sisters and brothers with us this time. We got our Hispanic. Asian, Native American sisters and brothers with us this time. I think Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King said we may not have gotten here on the same ship, but we are in the same boat right now. In Father Teresa's Wine Cellar, we believe all oppression is intersectional. And this means our analysis of current events frequently includes discussion of difficult and explicit content. Any combination of the following topics could be included in our show. Murder, rape, war, climate change, racism, sexism, violence, sexual violence, homophobic violence, heterocentrism, discrimination and abuse against individuals of nonconformist sexuality, domestic violence, child abuse, child rape, child neglect, elderly abuse, verbal abuse, police brutality, microaggressions, ableism, cyberbullying, genital mutilation, ideological extremism, and people just being total fucking assholes.
Turning the microphones on. All and right. <clears throat> right, checking them, taking a look at them. Holy shit, blowing up the spot as it were. Oh, you just want to be loud, huh? Uh, <clears throat> shit, yes. Ah, uh, fuck, folks. I just alleviated a headache right in time for the fucking program. Uh, the audio that you heard uh, at the uh, at the outset there. Let's uh, take another look at that uh, Martha Fracken link. That is a uh, fire.ca.gov/daily-wildfire-report. I found that to be fucking constructive. That white man right there made that six minutes work. I'll tell you what. That was a white man that isn't just going by the lowest bar possible. Really? That white man put in some effort. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. And did you know? I, I see I see Bernie. You see Bernie recently? What? what? Nigga looks like he's not combing his hair again. Uh-oh. Like he's trying to appeal to us again. Like he's giving up? It, or, or maybe he's trying to bring it back. And it's like, no, nigga. Like, we, again... The Bernie Bros thing was a myth. It was never a cult of personality. Yes, he had a Brooklyn accent and the hair was a little funny. And his, I think the the white woman word is frumpy. Okay. The the frumpy suits. Yeah. Like those things were amusing, but we supported the policy, not the politician fuckheads. All right, and um, also a little bit more on the uh, wildfires. And for the folks looking at the Facebook Live, I did make a Facebook Live. I went ahead and implemented my idea early, and I'm just running one of those cat compilation vidges. Mm-hmm. So, because uh, you don't want to just watch us um, listen to a book and then talk about it every <laughs> few minutes. Like, that's why like, you just want to look at our blank faces. That's why, like, if Phoenix Leader's interviewing someone, I prefer to have some sort of split screen so that you're not just looking at Phoenix listening to answers. It's weird. It's weird video. But, like, if you do prefer some video, then you can see some cool cats, and that's neat. Right? I think it's neat. You think it's neat. I hope you do. (laughs) All right. And um, we are going to be getting to uh, Thomas Frank's book, The People, Comma, No... A brief history of anti-populism. Yes. All right, and uh, but just one more diddly do regarding those California fires because I'm on that, and don't think I'm not aware of the uh, black man that was deliberately paralyzed by the police mm-hmm. <coughs> when they when they shot that nigga up. The police are actually probably disappointed they didn't kill his kids because they were in the car. Yeah. Ooh. God, yeah. Like him, the kids. That's way too many people left alive to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah, like they just a cab just went for more fucking generations. Yeah, for sure. Now where is that? Because I asked uh, some of the homie locos in California what it's like trying to breathe out there right now, and I did get a wee bitty boo of commentary. There we are. So uh, Becker Loco is a uh, top shelf educator out there, and Becker Loco, who has been on the program before. For a very interesting episode, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) Becker Loco said, The air is pretty smoky here. The first couple of days, my nose and throat were burning from the smoke. Lots of ash covering everything. Some days there is no ash falling, and others it is like light snow. 
Usually the wind shifts at night and we can open our windows to get cool air in. Heat waves suck. Last night we couldn't open we we couldn't open up and luckily we were able to buy a portable air condition unit and were able to sleep. We have had a excuse me. We have had the unit for 3 days now. Nowhere in town had any, and we had to order from Amazon. Hey, Jeff needs more money. Yes, he does. Um, hey, and, and I'm not, this is not an indictment of Becker Loco. An indictment. God, do I say words like that now? Yes, you, you do. What do you mean now? Like, that's new. Like, you haven't always talked like that. Mm-hmm. Ugh. 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 Phoenix Kaliter is just bloviating right now. Really? You're a persnickety old man. <gasps> no, I'm curmudgeon. Also that. Uh, but uh, Becker Loco continues and says, um, Since I am teaching uh, from home, it is getting unbearable with the heat. I haven't been able to go on any walks or hikes because of the air quality and have been staying indoors and out of my garden. We were asked to conserve water because the fire and the potential to contaminate the water supply for our entire county, about 500,000 people. Our water comes from the Russian River. I like that. I'm a Russian bot. It comes from the Russian River, and the fire was right up against it. Um, what up? Speaking of um, Russians... Did you see the latest liberal conspiracy theory? Fuck yeah. L- let me hear it. What's happening? About the garden. That they, like, they, I mean, they ripped out trees, so everyone's mad because those trees have been there since JFK was in office. But um, Melania, like, redid the garden to look like a rectangle, and they're like, it looks just like this garden in Russia. Clear. And I was like, nigga, it's a rectangle in a garden. Come on now. Oh, like, my that's, God. Like, that's too much. It's too much. I saw another bootlicker take on that same thing. And it was how she made it, like, less beautiful, I guess. Yeah. And, like, they were talking about the history behind it. Uh-huh. And they kept saying, our garden. Our garden. And I was like, if that's our garden on our land, then let the, um... I, I typed this up, too, but I don't have it in front of me. But I said, like, the, um... Let the poltergeist of patriotism in, enact its revenge on the next inhabitants. Yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, if, also, it's if it's ours. If it's ours, I would like to plant some vegetables on it. If it's ours... Nigga, gets more phoenixes than everybody. Phoenix is Tyano, Ho-Chunk, a nigga, and a Jew. Like Phoenix needs all the justice. <laughs> I would like I would like to see that. Jesus, like Phoenix literally needs justice from Africa to Puerto Rico to the mainland back to Germany. Phoenix Kaliter needs four corners of justice. Can you hold it down? And when you start a podcast, that's the name. The four corners, corners of, of justice. justice. Fuck yeah. It's like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but if they were SJWs. <laughs> Woo! God, what would that be like? You, Penny Loco, mm-hmm. uh, that nigga Andrea that you fucks with with Swap. Yeah, y'all niggas is funny. Y'all be Alexandria. making Andrea. How did I say it? You said Andrea. There is an Andrea, but that's a different person. How do? How say it again? Alexandria. Alex, how, and I said what? Andrea. I be tripping with the names. I'm go- <laughs> yo. If I fuck up your name, that's all of my bad. No, no, I totally get it though. Because there's an, involved with swap. There was an Andrea, an Alex, Andrews, and an Alexandria. Oh Jesus! So, so I kind of get it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then, I mean, of course, I, I grew up in Spanaway. I'm all around Alexander's and Alexandria's all. Jesus Christ. Yeah, right. Alejandro's and every damn thing. Uh, a little bit more um, from the folks uh, responding. And, uh, here we go. And Andrea Loco left a comment, say uh, also from California, saying that the breathing out there is bad. All caps. Uh, it's like someone uh, stuffed your face into a fire pit. Uh, my wife has lung issues. We've had the windows closed since last week, relying on fans for cooling. Jesus, and um, and then someone who couldn't comment. I don't. I don't know if um, I don't have my uh, Facebook set that only friends can comment. So maybe there was some something glitchy about it. So uh, the homie loco put a screenshot of their comment, and their their comment was. Uh, <clears throat> Fires all around about 20 miles out from me. My area is fine because it's a microclimate. First few days, you could really feel the smoke inside your house. It's gotten clearer now, but when we drove from, from San Francisco to Los Angeles yesterday, literally all over Central California was smoke. My eyes were itchy from it. Plume is good air quality index application. And that is what I had for that. And from there, we better get to some Thomas Frank because we have just burned some airtime. We have. Haven't we? We have. But no one's on the line. Uh, Jan Loco in the comments section, Jan Loco said, neat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, the cat joints. And um, Jose said, uh, doobie doobie doo. Oh, just put cat and um, heart, eyes, smiling face three times. I have to read the whole comment. <laughs> Do you, though? Yes, indeed. All right. All right, folks. So let's go ahead and jump back into Thomas Frank. I ran it back a little under four minutes from where we left off so we can give it a running start. And if anyone missed the first episode, the archive is right back there. If you're on the podcast feed, it's right back. If you're on the Patreon feed, it's the very previous episode. It also does open with fire updates, so if you're not interested in those, you can skip them and uh, and get to this Thomas Frank book. So let's proceed to party. And for the folks on Facebook Live, there's a compilation of cats on the screen. Mm-hmm. Righto. Skibby flibby dibby doo. Uh oh, what's going and happened here? <laughs> Where's my audible? Well, you're uh. I guess to divorce any ah. word they choose from its original meaning. I was going to say your British accent is getting a little bit better. No, it's not. A little bit. <gasps> I'll never be as good as the person that played the fictional character Will Truman with it. That nigga was nice. Will Truman? Will Truman from oh. the Will and Grace program. Oh. Eric McCormick, that's his name. You gotta think of seasoning to think of a white man, ironically. <laughs> yeah, if I think if I think of McCormick seasoning, then I'll think of his name. <laughs> All right, let's party. Intentions of the people who coined a given word doesn't tell us a whole lot. In this case, I think it does matter. For one thing, populist is not a word that fell conveniently from the sky, empty of signification and ready for pundits to use however they want. It was consciously invented to denote a particular group with a particular purpose. And though the People's Party is no more, the political philosophy that the populists embodied did not die. The idea of working people coming together against economic privilege lives on. 
You might say it constitutes one of the main streams of our democratic tradition. The populist impulse has, in fact, been a presence in American life since the country's beginning. Populism triumphed in the 1930s and the 1940s when the people overwhelmingly endorsed a regulatory welfare state. Populist uprisings occur all the time in American life, always with the same enemies, monopolies, banks, and corruption, and always with the same salt-of-the-earth heroes. When we use the word to describe demagogues and would-be dictators, we are inverting that historic meaning. Populism was profoundly, achingly democratic. The Kansans who invented the term were referring to something that by the standards of the time was anti-demagogic, that was pro-enlightenment and pro-equality. In its heyday, and alone among American political parties of the time, populism stood strong for human rights. Populism had prominent women leaders. Populists despised tyrants and imperialism. Populism defied the poisonous idea of Southern white solidarity. In these days of feverish anti-populism, my mind often goes back to a 1900 speech by one of the very last populists in Congress, a Nebraska lawyer named William Neville. His subject was America's then new policy of imperial rule over the Philippines, and the populist spelled out his party's opposition. But first, he deplored Southern Democrats for trying to, quote, exclude the black man from the right of suffrage. And he denounced Republicans for, quote, shooting salvation and submission into the brown man because he wants to be free. And then Neville said this, Nations should have the same right among nations that men have among men. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is as dear to the black and brown man as to the white, as precious to the poor as to the rich, as just to the ignorant as to the educated, as sacred to the weak as to the strong, and as applicable to nations as to individuals, and the nation which subverts such right by force is no better governed than the man who takes the law into his own hands. Of course, Scholars and journalists have a right to ignore such statements and to divorce any word they choose from its original meaning. It's legitimate for them to take this particular word back to its Latin root and to start all over again from there, to pretend that the train from Kansas City never arrived and the farmer's revolt never happened, and to define populist just however they please. But why would someone do that? Why use such a fine, democratic word to mean racist, to mean dictator, to mean anti-intellectual? Before we begin on that story, let me make clear that I strongly approve of studying racist right-wing demagogues and figuring out what can be done to defeat them. I have spent my adult life engaged in exactly that project. Calling such figures populists, however, is a mistake if defeating them is really our purpose. Opponents of the right should be claiming the high ground of populism, not ceding it to guys like Donald Trump. Indeed, this is so obvious to me that I am flabbergasted anew 
every time I see the word abused in this way? How does it help reformers, I wonder, to deliberately devalue the coinage of the American reform tradition? It is my argument that reversing the meaning of populist tells us something important about the people who reversed it. Denunciations of populism, like the ones we hear so frequently nowadays, arise from a long tradition of pessimism about popular sovereignty and democratic participation. And it is that pessimism, that tradition of quasi-aristocratic scorn, that has allowed the paranoid right to flower so abundantly. The name I give to that pessimistic tradition is anti-populism. And as we investigate its history, we will find it using the same rhetoric over and over again in 1896, in 1936, and again today. Whether it is defending the gold standard or NAFTA, Anti-populism mobilizes the same sentiments and draws the same stereotypes. It sometimes even speaks to us from the same prestigious institutions. Its most toxic ingredient, a highbrow contempt for ordinary Americans, is as poisonous today as it was in the Victorian era or in the Great Depression. One name scholars have applied to this tradition is the elitist theory of democracy. It holds that public policy should be made by a consensus of elites rather than by the emotional and deluded people. It regards mass protest movements as outbreaks of irrationality. Marginalized people, it assumes, are marginalized for a good reason. The critical thing in a system like ours it maintains, is to allow members of the professional political class to find consensus quietly, harmoniously, and without too much interference from subaltern groups. The obvious objective fact that the professional political class fails all the time is regarded in this philosophy as uninteresting, if not impossible. When anti-populists have occasion to mention the elite failures of recent years, deindustrialization, financial crisis, opioid epidemic, everything related to the 2016 election, they almost always dismiss them as inevitable or unpredictable, episodes no one could possibly have foreseen or managed more successfully. On the subject of elite failure, there is no international program of inquiry as there is with populism. There are no calls for papers, no generous foundation grant program, no Stanford Global Elitisms Project, no incentives at all to discover why experts keep blundering. Indeed, anti-populists find it harder to criticize their colleagues for fouling things up than they do to deride the voting public of America for being angry over those foul-ups. If the choice is between admitting that professionals often fail or determining that popular democracy must be reined in, anti-populists will choose the latter every time. If only it were possible, they sigh, to dissolve the people and elect another. Chapter 1 
What was populism? Populism was the first of America's. Microphones back on. I'm pausing there because apparently we done slid the fuck into chapter one. Yes, we have. Books are fucking weird. So 35 minutes was all just telling you what the book is going to be about. Yes. But I guess that that's what you uh, you fancy educated folks do. Y'all are all like, we have to articulate it comprehensively. That's kind of like if you think about it in terms of like a research paper, right? So hmm. like that was like the thesis. And now we're going to get into how he arrived at his conclusions. Oh, so it's, it's kind of like what I uh, what I was talking about a few years ago. Like when we were really getting around like, um, well, actually, no. When we were getting kicked out of those uh, groups and face booths. Yeah. And some of I and I just was like publicly critiquing them because I thought they were fucking dweebs. But uh fucking I was like, one thing that they're constantly doing is just I, I don't want to use the word shouting. They are emphatically stating the conclusion. Yeah. To someone of whom is a complete fucking stranger on the internet. Right. I don't know if that uh if that's a winning strategy. That's how I say strategy now. That's not how you say strategy. Um, Strategery. Also, no, I don't think it's a good idea because, well, for two reasons. One, when you are starting off with a conclusion, one of the problems is a bunch of people aren't going to listen to you because they have a different conclusion. So you should like be able to provide somewhat of an outline of how you got there. And secondly, you might end up allying with bad people because they have also arrived at the same conclusion, but for completely different reasons, right? And so I see that sort of like... Um, how it's applied with um, like black separatist groups. They're considered hate groups because they want racial segregation because they're scared of white people <laughs> versus like Nazis who are like, no, we hate these inferior niggers. Let's kill them all. Like those are very different. Like they arrived at the same conclusion, but for drastically different reasons. But because they both have the same conclusion, they're both equally considered to be hate groups. So sometimes it's important to know how you got there. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, where I'm just like, like, all right, ACLU, you do some decent work, but them them Islam niggas are not a hate group. And I just want to know, like, all right, the last time, a, a, what is it, a synagogue? When I got shot up, was that some nigga with a flat top and a bow tie and a bean pie? Um, I can only think of one synagogue in recent times that was attacked by a black person. And I don't know, if, like, what their affiliations were. Yeah, it's like I heard I did hear something about a um like somebody black in New York attacked somebody of whom is uh white but their religion is Jewish. Yeah. But I think it was like some landlord type shit. Oh, that could be. But yeah, there's a lot of um there's a lot of anti Semitism with like Nation of Islam, but there's also like people who are assumed to be Nation of Islam because they're like black and East Coast or because they're like black and Muslim. Yeah. Or because they're black and separatist. And it's like not everybody who's like black and talks about white supremacy and is not uh, of a Christian persuasion is necessarily linked to Nation of Islam as well. So I see that happening a lot. Yeah, that's not Nation of it. That's just Carl. That's just right. Carl. <laughs> and this is what he does on his days off. Right. <laughs> Fucking leave. Carl is not hurting any damn body. Right. Carl didn't knee on anyone's neck. 
Carl didn't shoot anyone in the back and paralyze him. Carl just yelled at a college-age white woman's face that she's the devil until she cried. That's all that really happened. (laughs) (laughs) And she stood there and did it. It's New York. Keep walking. You stood there, dork. Right. (laughs) Got yelled at. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so that's why it's always important to know how you got to your conclusion, I think. So yeah. Yeah. So books aren't weird. No, books are not weird. Well, fictional books are. Because they're written by transphobes that think they can hide it behind magic. Are we talking about the Bible or J.K. Rowling? I don't really know. They're the same thing. (laughs) The way those fucking Harry Potter fans are. Jesus Christ. Oh my God, please read another book series. I am begging (laughs) y'all. And I did, uh, and I I was kind of stuck on that phrasing, um, divorce any word from its original meaning. That's something that we see happening way faster than the days of yore. Yeah, for sure. Right? Like, And even the Democrats are pretty darn good at it. Like, progressive is a bad word now. Yeah. Right? And it's like, fucking, but look at how long it took Republicans to make liberal a bad word. Yeah. Right? Or, like, even politically correct. Like, I remember growing up, like, literally watching people try to make that bad. While other folks, like, I remember even, like, Jay-Z... Like, he was uncomfortable calling um, Corinne Stephens uh, Superhead. Yeah. The uh, the pornography performer, and uh, I guess she's also an author. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she has a book out. And, um, and, he, and he straight up said, he was like, is that politically correct? Can I say Superhead? And it's like, that's literally the name of the video that she did with the um, OG performer, Mr. Marcus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, but it's like... It really wasn't until like almost damn near now where it gets all the way up to um I think I had I had Michael Wright from the Something in Common program on and we were talking about some rap shit and he asked me like what do you think about like you think political correctness has gone too far and it's like that's the moment where you can teach someone what political correctness actually is and then tell me who's more politically correct some liberal democrat or somebody who wants to stop strangers from having abortions they make sure to say pro-life. Mm-hmm. They make sure to call um, anything where there's an abortion happening an abortion mill. Yeah. Right? They call yeah. it killing babies. They refuse mm-hmm. to say the word fetus. Mm-hmm. And why? Because they want to target a specific audience with those words. They are politically correct as fuck. Right. All For right? Sure. And uh, But then, like, uh, watching words change in real time, right? Like, Black Lives Matter soon as that sentence popped up, it was like, oh, so you don't think all lives matter? It's like, whoa, nigga. Yep. It was immediate. As soon as, like, we're Bernie supporters. Nah, you're Bernie bros. Yep. <laughs> and it's like, but we're just voting for a candidate in the primary. Isn't that what primaries are for? Nope. No. You're a bunch of racist, misogynist, class. Remember they used to call us class privilege? Oh, fuck. They still do. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, where they're like, Bernie bros are basically like white dudes in middle management who don't have to care about electoral politics. Man, I'm glad to be a dark-skinned white dude in middle management that was on the fucking floor instead of in the office fucking... Nick, I'm pretty sure I sweat some of my black off today. (laughs) Like, dead up. Well, that's why the hashtag Bernie made me white was trending. Oh, that, that that was a cool young brother that did that. And Elon James White tried to be nuanced about it, but he can't because he's a fucking clown. Mm. 
All right, that was a good discussion. <laughs> uh-huh, about the book that we're reading. And folks, uh, you can call in as we uh, stop and pause in between whatnots and what have yous. Uh, you can call in at 347-857-3937. All right, and I'm going to go ahead and continue on with this Thomas Frank. Let's keep checking out his book. Um, this It's an eight-hour audio book, so we are going to party to it, and we'll... Pro- you know what? We might actually finish it before we go to uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Think so? Yeah. I want to be there, man. Like, I want to walk down the street and just say hello to people on the streets where there's you just a bunch of... You want to say hello to people. Yes, because up and down the streets are fucking pride flags and trans pride flags and Black Lives Matter flags and signs and fucking like what their signs have said shit like um like it's science and shit like oh, that yeah yeah believe in science or something oh and like there were several people signs that said wear a damn mask yeah it's like i want to i literally want to walk through that town well not the whole town around where the where the sjw's are all right those are my people all right folks let's uh swing it back bring it back just like this uh, 30 seconds back, give it a running start. Into starting actual chapter one. Great economic uprisings, a roar of outrage from people in the lower half of the country's social order. It was a quintessential mass movement in which rank and file Americans came to think of the country's inequitable system as a thing they might change by common effort. It was a glimpse of how citizens of a democracy born with a faith in equality can sometimes react when the brutal hierarchy of conventional arrangements is no longer tolerable to them. Populism was also our country's final serious third-party effort, the last one to stand a decent chance of breaking the duopoly of the Republicans and Democrats. In the 1890s, the two main parties were still basically regional organizations, relics of the Civil War. Populism transcended that system by making an appeal based on class solidarity, aiming to bring together farmers in the South and West with factory workers in northern cities. The interests of rural and civic labor are the same, proclaimed the famous 1892 Omaha platform of the People's Party. And their enemies are identical, by which the Pops meant those who prospered while producing nothing, bankers, railroad barons, and commodity traders, along with their hirelings, corrupt politicians who served wealth instead of the people. This was, of course, a time of unregulated corporate monopolies, of in-your-face corruption, and of crushing currency deflation. And it was also a time when everyone agreed that government's role was to provide a framework conducive to business and otherwise to get out of the way. That was the formal ideal. The execution was slightly uglier, a matter of smoke and exploitation, bankruptcy and foreclosure, of cabinet seats for sale and entire state legislatures bought with free-ride railroad passes. Against this backdrop came the populist revolt. The rightful subject of the government's ministrations, populism insisted, was not business at all, 
but the people. It all began in the 1880s when farmers started signing up by the thousands for a cooperative movement called the Farmers Alliance. America was still largely an agricultural nation, and in the places where populism eventually took root, farmers made up overwhelming majorities of the population. They were not particularly affluent majorities, however. In the South, farmers tended to be desperately poor, borrowing against future crops to buy food and necessities. The merchants from whom they borrowed took pains to ensure not only that the farmers never got out of debt, but that they took the merchants' dictation on what to grow and how to grow it. What to grow always turned out to be cotton, and as the southern farmers produced crop after bumper crop of the stuff, the price only sank. Farmers in the West, meanwhile, found themselves at the mercy of a different set of middlemen, local railroad monopolies and far-off commodity speculators. Like their brethren in the South, they worked and borrowed and grew and harvested. They watched as what they produced was sold in Chicago and New York for good prices, and yet what they themselves earned from their labors fell and fell and fell. In 1870, farmers received 43 cents for a bushel of corn. Twenty years later, in eastern Kansas, it sold for 10 cents a bushel, far less than what it cost to grow. Accounts from the period describe corn lying around on the ground with no takers, corn burned in stoves for heat. To such people, the Farmers Alliance made a simple proposition. Let's find out why we are being ruined, and then let's get together and do something about it. Education was the first order of business, and the movement conceived of itself as a sort of national university, employing an army of traveling lecturers. Chapters of the movement ran lending libraries. Radical rural newspapers, of which there were many, sold cheap books about agriculture and political reform. The movement also promised real results for farmers by means of rural cooperatives and political pressure. And the Farmers Alliance spread like a wildfire. By the end of the 1880s, it had millions of members, mainly in the South, the Colored Farmers Alliance, the Southern Alliances were segregated, represented a million more. Similar farm groups in the northern states brought additional millions into the radical fold. News reports marveled at the enormous audiences that would turn out to hear Alliance speakers. Crowds of the size typically found at modern-day football games gathering in a pasture somewhere. A novel published at the time describes the way American minds began to change. People commenced to think who had never thought before, and people talked who had seldom spoken. Little by little they commenced to theorize upon their condition. Despite the poverty of the country, the books of Henry George, Edward Bellamy, and other economic writers were bought to be read greedily and nourished by the fascination of novelty and the zeal of enthusiasm, thoughts and theories sprouted like weeds after a May shower. They discussed income tax and single tax. They talked of government ownership and the abolition of private property, fiat money, and the unity of labor, and a thousand conflicting theories. At first, the political program of the Farmers Alliance focused on a handful of big issues the regulation of railroads, federal loans to farmers, 
and currency reform of a kind that would help debtors. The alliance developed positions on a whole host of other matters as well. It supported free trade, for example, and votes for women, and secret ballots on election day. Thanks to the movement's vast numbers, conventional politicians in every farm state began to pay attention, promising to act on the farmers' demands. But somehow the politicians never delivered. The power of business over the state legislatures always turned out to be too great to overcome. The same thing on a larger scale was obviously true of Congress in Washington, D.C. And while the politicians triangulated, the farmers' position worsened. Something profound had taken place, however. The farmers, men and women of society's commonest rank, had figured out that being exploited was not the natural order of things. So members of the Farmers Alliance began taking matters into their own hands. In Kansas and a few other western states, they went into politics directly, styling themselves as the People's Party, a new organization with a new agenda. In the fall of 1890, they challenged and in places overthrew the dominant local Republicans, turning out old-school senators and representatives and replacing them with leaders from their own movement. Over the next few years, the party organized itself nationally, and at their gathering in Omaha in the summer of 1892, they formally announced their program to the world. By this time, the Knights of Labor and a number of other unions were on board, along with most of the reform-minded farm groups of the era, and so the People's Party declared itself to be the first great labor conference of the United States and of the world, bringing together the producers of the nation from both the country and the city. They denounced capitalists, corporations, national banks, rings, trusts, and they declared that the time has come when the railroad corporations will either own the people or the people must own the railroads. In that heyday of American inequality, that golden age of Vanderbilt and Rockefeller, the populists alone saw things clearly. The fruits of the toil of millions are boldly stolen to build up colossal fortunes for a few, unprecedented in the history of mankind, and the possessors of these in turn despise the republic and endanger liberty. From the same prolific womb of governmental injustice, we breed the two great classes, tramps and millionaires. In 1892, the populist presidential candidate, a Civil War general from Iowa named James B. Weaver, won 22 electoral votes, and by following a strategy of fusion or coordination with local Democrats, the party managed to elect governors in several western states ordinarily controlled by the Republicans. In the South, where the dominant group was the conservative Bourbon Democrats, the populist revolt met with disaster. The party of white supremacy casually cheated the Pops out of victories that should have been theirs. The only southern state where the third party prevailed was North Carolina where fusion with the local Republicans brought populism into power in the middle of the 1890s. To this subject, we shall return anon. Social class. Okay, boom, and microphone's back on. Stopped right where he said social class. 
Folks, yes, I did alleviate my headache, but I'm also preempting for tomorrow, so I went and um, took some items that have vitamin C in them, which were frozen, and I put them in a blender with some water, and I am drinking the fruit. So yes. I think I'm going to get some vitamin C and some water and, you know, fruit pulp in my body and let that begin flowing about so I can go be exploited for 10 more hours. Phoenix Clear, you had some gangster shit to say. Oh, yeah. Uh, just, again, I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? So what is he talking about here? Trying to create a third party and struggling to do so because of the corruption of the two main parties. So the same bipartisan issues we're having now. And then noting that um, it's the millionaires and the pundits who are basically telling us uh, they know better than us of what we need while we're the ones who are struggling firsthand because of their policies and that it's basically creating a uh, a two-class country, right? What did they say here? It was uh, the tramps and the millionaires. Now it's the 1% versus the 99, right? The haves and the have-nots. So, you know, not a lot has changed, <laughs> interestingly enough. And uh, in the Facebook Live comments section, uh, Nicole uh, left a comment just saying, hey, love the cats, Lo loving the cats. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep that up. I mean, and I mean, the cat compilation videos are so damn long. I could probably just play the same one every time. There's multiple of them. Yeah. But I mean, who's going to remember every single three second clip of a cat being silly? <laughs> So it's like, I really could just use the same one and have the good backup audio, and that's how we'll book club. Right? Populism and cats. Cats against capitalism. Holy shit. <laughs> Which, I think I left that group. Did you? I, I forgot why. I, th I think... I, yeah, I can't remember. Something was bugging me, and I left that group. The, the grifters? There were grifters in there? Yeah, there was a few. I d oh, maybe. May wait, l lace me up before we go back to the Oh, book. it was just people who were like joining the group but they would never comment unless it was to ask for money but it was like literally like once a month or once every other month asking for money and then never commented on anything else like didn't like just make a like oh hey here's my animals like cute picture didn't like comment under somebody else's stuff because people will come in and like ask for like advice and you know shit like that and like no there wasn't no like helping somebody with advice um, you know, just a check-in of how other folks are doing. It was just a straight-up, like, hey, I need money. Give me money. Oh, no shit. Yeah, someone, like, someone got called out for it and got, like, very upset. And, like, made a series of, like, follow-up posts to be like, I can't believe I'm being called a grifter. I'm so embarrassed. I want to cry. I was like, not embarrassed, not embarrassed enough to stop posting, though. So, okay. Damn, and there's a sad side to that, because they probably need money. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, oh, you know what? Yeah, huh? We don't know you niggas. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know. You know, I mean, you want to assume everybody has the best intentions, but you know what? And that's why we're the, we're the social justice warriors as we or like some people call me a keyboard warrior. And it's like, all right, cuz, nigga, nigga. <laughs> but, <laughs> but fucking yeah, that shit like because in this world like you look at the shit that we're concerned with and it's like, yeah, we can't just bring anybody around because we have survivors of rape culture and we have fucking um yeah like there's, there's people yeah. out there that are assholes that can't be comrade and yeah, i guess we have be. to have small groups like like i think like a little and i mean maybe it doesn't sound little when you say it out loud but when you think of like the national or global population or even just the population of your city like 50 people don't really need more people than that 
Yeah. Like that that's our squad, that's our people. We take care of each other. Like I bet if we really started if we if Phoenix and I sat down and started writing down like our closest comrades out of these Facebook years, mm-hmm. it might be around 50. Maybe. Yeah, maybe 40. Yeah, it might yeah, it might not even be 50. A little 50, less. Like, 50 honestly, might be I might be like, tripping. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we I would love 50, but like, you know, yeah, which and thinking and using the word fifty, that's a lot of what we do is um pretty much every couple of weeks one of us is giving fifty bucks to someone else. Pretty much. Yeah, like we're all just handed the same dollar back and forth. Yeah. Or really we're not, because that dollar has to get spent on something that goes back into a capitalist pocket. Yeah. But then we swing it back around. Someone gets some overtime hours, right? Someone gets a bonus. And then it's like, hey, comrades need something. I got my shit covered. Like, if you folks that are looking at the Facebook Live, you see my shit says YouTube Premium. Yeah. Right? Because Also because, Jesus Christ, like, I try to take a shower with a playlist on and I get that fucking ad for... Like, that. the three-minute long ones and shit. Oh, no. I'm ta- You know, the, the I call them lib bros, right? Liberals but bros that sell the soap, but they oh. make sure to sell it extra manly. Yeah. But don't worry, I don't really have a baritone voice. I'm a lib bro. Very annoying. I think they're called Squatch. Yeah, which- I see them. I also get one on Facebook where they're like, it smells like a campfire. Nigga, why the fuck would I want to smell? If I smell like a campfire, it's because I'm dirty, because I'm outside camping and I built a campfire. Why would I buy a soap that smells like a campfire? Yeah. Like, What? And, and as a masculine cis hetero man myself, fuck off. I want to smell like fucking pomegranate and shit. Like, I like those smells. Why wouldn't I want it on my body so that I can just smell it on me as I go about my day? Come on, chief. All right. That was a good discussion. We are really terrible at having a book. Y'all better start calling in because <laughs> it's really just going to be us doing tangents every 10 minutes. <laughs> These fucking... These are intellectual fetishists, and they like it. <laughs> that's what that's what they're into. Somebody's just like they they put the tape over their uh over their webcam, and they're like, yeah, make those dad jokes, yeah. Dot <laughs> <laughs> com. Oh no, oh no. For folks that may not be familiar with the wine cellar, that is a we had a um a BDSM uh porn performer. Um, on the program that has like over 20 years in the game. Yeah. Uh, very, a uh, veteran pornography performer on twice. They go by the name of Tim Woodman. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, we do the interview, but then we also do conversation and clown around. And uh, ongoing joke we have is if you say a sentence that's kind of silly, say .com after it and imagine what kind of BDSM site that would be. So make those dad jokes.com. That'd be a good one. I, I, that would be a fucking good one. Oh, God. All right, back to more responsible programming. Oh, let me take a look here. Uh, right before I get to it, uh, Laura Loco just came through with two comments real fast. Said, um, maybe we exchange cats with that 50. Huh. Well, like, we all, we share cats. 
We can share cats. When COVID goes down. Yes. <laughs> when they, and you know what, folks? Like, I actually do want to share light skin Killmonger. Because, God oh, damn God, if, if you are... the attention. Not just him, but, like, imagine someone who's depressed or sad. Oh, so, like, a support animal. Yeah, because light skin Killmonger wants to hang out. Like, I'll tell you right now, if you pick up light skin Killmonger and you're holding uh, them vertical, like you typically would a cat, if, if they start squirmy moving a bit... They're probably trying to position themselves for you to hold them like an infant baby. And that's my fault. I got that cat used to being held like that. Yes. He likes it. And Laura Loco, the second comment they left was tickle my amygdala. Dot com. I was like, she better say it. Dot com. <laughs> tickle my amygdala dot com. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, we have problems. This book's about populism. This book is about <laughs> Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. I'm. I'm very. I'm the person you should be tuned into. All right. Here we are, folks. I'll run it back thirty seconds. Okay. Okay. Was essential to how populists understood their situation, and they talked often about what they called the producing class. But the phrase they favored above all others when speaking of the toilers was, "the people." as in we the people, as in of the people, by the people, for the people. That was the struggle as they saw it, the plain people versus the power. It is common to cast populism as the end of something, as the farmer's last political stand or the terminus of 19th century radicalism. With a slightly wider focus, the arrival of populism looks a lot more like the shock of the new. A new way of looking at things, in the words of historian Lawrence Goodwin, a mass expression of a new political vision. This was the first movement in American politics that demanded far-reaching government intervention in the economy in order to benefit working people. And contemporaneous accounts of the movement often describe its arrival as a sort of epiphany, a Pentecost of politics, a moment of sudden mass enlightenment. Consider this description of a gathering of Texas populists. For a whole week, they literally lived and breathed reform. By day and by night, they sang of populism. They prayed for populism. They read populist literature and discussed populist principles with their brethren in the faith and they heard populist orators loose their destructive thunderbolts in the name of the People's Party. In truth, that vision was manifesting all over the world in those days. The Pops won the support of a significant chunk of the emerging American labor movement, and in some places the People's Party was basically a labor party. As such, populism was part of a great wave of working-class political <coughs> movements then rising up in the industrialized countries. The British Labour Party was founded at about the same time, and populists on occasion looked to it for inspiration. The Australian Labour Party, for its part, actually considered adopting the name People's Party in homage to what then looked like a powerful new force in the United States. Like these other groups, the Pops concentrated their efforts on economic issues and the closely related matter of electoral reform. By and large, they stayed away from the culture war issues of the day. This 
surprises the modern-day student of the movement. The populists may have had a churchly way of speaking, but for the most part they refrained from denouncing ordinary people for their bad values. Questions like prohibition, for example, threatened to break the populist coalition apart and therefore had to be avoided despite the distaste of many pops for liquor and saloons. With their singular focus on economics, they regarded many of the controversies of the day as traps or distractions. Populist rhetoric oscillated between passionate denunciations of injustice and methodical, even boring, exegeses on complicated economic problems. Starvation stocks abroad amid an overproduction of food, roared a typical populist jacuzzi from 1891. Within a few sentences, however, it had gone from hot to cold, calling on readers to calmly and dispassionately examine the facts which we are prepared to submit in support of our claims. If the facts and arguments we present can be refuted, we neither ask nor expect your support. These were peculiarly math-minded reformers. Look over introductions to the populist cause like the 1895 pamphlet, What is Populism? And you will find a detailed plank-by-plank exposition of the party's economic program, its demands for a government-controlled currency, for government control of the railroads, for rooting out political corruption, and precious little else. Many of populism's causes are familiar to us today. The regulation of monopolies, the income tax, the initiative and referendum, the direct election of senators, and so on. They are familiar because they have largely been achieved. One item on the list of populist grievances requires a lengthier explanation today, however. For many Americans of the late 19th century, currency deflation was the single greatest issue facing the nation. At the time, the worth of the dollar was fixed to the value of gold, the gold standard. As a result, the amount of dollars in circulation could not increase unless the government's reserves of gold, a scarce metal, increased as well. One consequence of the gold standard was painful, constant deflation. Since the population and the economy were both growing explosively, and since the number of dollars in circulation could not grow with them, dollars became scarcer every year and constantly increased in value. If you were a banker, this was a fantastic situation. If you were a debtor, and farmers were debtors, the gold standard was dreadful. It meant you had to repay what you had borrowed, using dollars that were now far more valuable than they had been when you took out your loan. Debt of this kind was not something you paid off easily. It was a condition in which you struggled all your days. A form of servitude, almost. Fiat currency was the hardcore populist's proposal for solving this problem. It would have authorized the government simply to print the nation's medium of exchange however it chose, and then to establish its value by administrative pronouncement, without any reference to precious metals. This is the system we have today, incidentally. The other remedy populists embraced was free silver, simply replacing the limited reserves of gold 
with a more plentiful supply of silver. Since silver was being mined all the time in America, the money in circulation under a silver standard would stand a better chance of keeping up with the economy's growth. Free silver proceeded to catch the imagination of certain classes of Americans in a way that is difficult to understand today. Silver became the object of a sort of crusade in the 1890s, a symbol that made everything fit together. Silver would not only solve the problem of deflation, people thought, it would humanize capitalism. Silver would bring back fairness. Silver represented democratic virtue and workerist authenticity. Gold, meanwhile, came to stand for aristocratic privilege and deathly inequality. As the silver craze swept America, the populists saw their fortunes ascend with it, ascend so rapidly that eventually free silver came to crowd out everything else the party stood for. In 1893, the national economy went into one of its periodic recessions. This time it was sharp and painful. Banks and businesses failed all over America, and especially in the West. Unemployment came close to 20%, with millions thrown out of work. Homeless people roamed the country. There were, of course, no federal programs in place for relief or stimulus or recovery. The crisis response of the Grover Cleveland administration in Washington consisted of an aggressive campaign of buying gold. The plight of the unemployed was of little concern to the country's economic authorities. But the confidence of bankers and investors was a different matter. Such people had to be assuaged. They had to be convinced of the government's unswerving devotion to economic orthodoxy, meaning the gold standard. And this the Democrat Cleveland set out to do. To stave off a panicked run on the nation's gold supply, he stockpiled gold, and then he stockpiled more gold. He made deals with bankers, keeping them happy with guaranteed profits so that they wouldn't withdraw that precious yellow stuff. He worked hard to restore their confidence, and above all, he stockpiled that gold. Before long, outrage was no longer confined to farm country. All over America, working people were learning what the populists had figured out a few years previously. In the summer of 1894, a local strike at the Pullman passenger car plant in Chicago blew up into a vast national conflagration. In solidarity with the workers at Pullman, the American Railway Union, led by Eugene Debs, refused to handle trains with Pullman cars attached. Rail traffic throughout the country quickly came to a standstill. President Cleveland took a break from stockpiling gold to order the U.S. Army into Chicago. His Justice Department tossed Debs in jail for obstructing the mail. An even more spectacular event occurred that same year when one Jacob Coxey, a populist from Ohio, conceived of the idea of a petition in boots. An army of unemployed men that would march to Washington, D.C. to make plain the miserable economic conditions in the hinterlands. From all over the country, jobless people joined up with Coxey's army. And several weeks and a few borrowed train rides later, they arrived in the nation's capital, the first ever mass protest march on Washington. 
Their demand was that the government hire unemployed people to build roads and other infrastructure, paying for it with deficit spending. Respectable Washingtonians laughed at the cockeyed suggestion and at the dirty tramps who supported it. What a bunch of cranks! D.C. police tossed Coxie in jail for walking on the Capitol lawn. The populists seemed perfectly positioned to take advantage of these dreadful developments. They were, after all, the self-proclaimed party of working people and economic grievance. They loudly deplored the methods used by the Cleveland administration to smash the Pullman strike in the streets of Chicago. And after the strike was over, the Pops embraced Eugene Debs as their newest hero. Meanwhile, as the hard times deepened and the Democratic administration did its grotesque favors for the banking community, the mania for silver grew and grew. Both of the old parties remained committed to the gold standard, leaving only the populists standing outside this tidy consensus of the orthodox and the comfortable. Never before had the reformers charged that the two parties ignored the real issues seemed more obvious, more self-evident. Populism was going to ride the silver escalator to the top. Reform was on the march. Populism was unstoppable. Then something crazy happened. That's a good stop point. <laughs> For the whole episode, actually, we are a little bit over our hour. <clears throat> And something I learned uh, pretty early on um, 2014 is uh, there's some folks you be around them for a minute, you know, and you know, you're talking, you're hanging. And then that quiet moment happens where you don't try to force any conversation. Let the quiet moment happen. But with some people, people like Phoenix Kalita, that quiet moment is a moment for them to say, no, there's no gold behind the money, right? <laughs> and... Uh, so Phoenix is one of these gold people. What is he talking about with the gold? Right. So what they were referencing was the point in time where it was basically what he said, that you had to have, well, allegedly, the uh, federal treasury, which is uh, supposed to be what's in Fort Knox, right? There's a certain amount of gold to back up the dollar. So for every, like paper dollar there was a certain amount of gold behind it right that was the idea and because of exactly what he explained that there were only so many dollars and they stopped getting more gold so if you already had all the dollars right it got harder and harder to get dollars you know if you were poor and you didn't already have them because there were only so many allowed to be in circulation and so eventually they uh started the federal government started uh going off the gold standard and to put more dollars in circulation to get people spending more is essentially what happened. Right. Yeah, so it's like there's no gold behind the dollar, no silver behind the dollar. And I'm like, there's no product behind the dollar. Like <laughs> and I think about um a tweet that I saw. And again, this is, you know, it's a tweet someone made. It could be true, but even if it's not a true story that they're telling, it is something that you can easily understand what they're getting at. Where they were like, um, hey, I mean, you want apples, like, why don't we just uh, plant an apple tree so that there's apples right here? And someone said, but what if someone steals them? And it's like, that's the fucking problem. Mm -hmm. Why does someone just own shit coming out of the planet that existed way the fuck before humans? Yep. It's and, not your, what I, Oh, and like, you know, but then also like the flip side of that, though, is like that's very much the system that people are used to because we're used to the rich people hoarding things. Like, I don't know. Jeff Bezos just gets to have like 10 houses. 
Like, you know, the fucking Clintons just get to have mansions. They just do for whatever reason. And so, like, yeah, people really can't conceive of concepts like public property or, you know, um, which is weird because we have those things, but people don't think about it. It's like we have public parks because we all pay taxes for them. Yeah. It's a public park. Come on now. And it's like, and then like the fucking the lib bros would look at me sideways because I take some Teflon tape or a pair of pliers from my job. And it's like the fucking Clintons took furniture from the White House. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> and how much from taxpayers? Woo-ba-doo-ba-doo. Really? Well, yeah. I, I'd, I'd say Barry Hussein and Ronald Reagan did oh, the most yes. of that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with those fucking bailout programs. But, yeah, like, so I, I, that's been a thing, and that's uh, kind of why currency is. And I think a lot of people don't think about it, but if you have a dollar bill, like, look at it. What does it say on it? Uh, legal tender. It says it's a treasury note. Yeah. Like a car note, right? And I know I think this is more of like a black people thing, really. All right, get, get, get smart on them because I don't know <laughs> shit. Yeah, so actually wish I had a dollar in front of me right now. Um, But no, that's something like black people say about a debt, right? Like, and I, I think more, man, maybe it's regional, but more white people will say like, oh, I took out a car loan. Black people say I have a car note. Oh, fuck. You right? know what? I know that vernacular. Yes. Yeah, and that's the money. And like, that's a car loan. That's the money you owe. So essentially, <laughs> if you have like a paper, t- well, back in the, you know, when there was the gold standard, right? So if you had a $20 bill, you technically speaking could go to a banking institution say give me $20 worth of gold hmm. that because that it's a note to you the person who owns the like the paper money and there's something that's supposed to back it up and whatever that is is what the government owes you in theory okay <laughs> that's ill and uh, Laura Local left a comment can't eat gold cannot no not even with the Mrs. Dash seasoning I love that no. shit but not no. even with that no nothing not even with the Eric McCormick yeah, and I mean, that's like the wild thing to me is we talk like money isn't even real. It's just it's not real. <gasps> You're saying money's not real? Money is not real. But Jesus is real, right? Yeah. Light skin Jesus? Uh, it's, uh, Racially ambiguous Jesus. Oh, he's real for sure. Oh, gee, yeah, <laughs> <or> maybe. <clears throat> That that but, nigga's, that nigga's name was like ha ha or some shit. But Who yeah, knows? That, I mean, yeah, I think people get caught up in these like constraints about all these rules about finances for a thing that doesn't even exist in a system that's intentionally stacked against you, and like people just don't, you know. I yeah. think that um, despite how ridiculously like conservative and sociopathic he is, um, I had a family member who was, you know, talking to me about these things. And he was like, you know, in the early 1900s, like a gold coin could buy you a men's suit. Like if, you know, if you could pay with a gold coin. And he's like, even though the paper value has drastically increased from the cost of a suit from then till now, it's still about a gold, like a gold coin, hmm. <laughs> like to get a good quality men's suit. And I was like, that's very interesting. But yeah, the paper, it's not, uh, and you, you can't eat gold. So, you know, no, whatever. Well, what if you plant a gold tree just like that apple? Then what if someone steals the gold from the gold tree? California gold rush. I don't know. What if someone? Uh, that's exactly what happens. All the prices get inflated. And then once the mines are empty, everyone goes back to poverty and moves on. This is not good. <laughs> Capitalism sucks, bro. Yeah. It does. And if you want more sucky capitalism and you like that we do sucky capitalism, uh, you can uh, hold it down and keep this program up and running, going and growing at patreon.com slash wine cellar media fund. 
Again, patreon.com slash Fund is how we got Phoenix Kaliter out of that office job at the church. Yes. Right? It's uh, it's It was a part of how we got to move out of that shithole apartment into this less oh, shithole yeah. apartment. Right? Yeah that, yeah, that that fucking Patreon, that was something. That was part yeah. of it. Jen Nauer also left a comment about uh, farmers cannot replant their seeds. Thank you, Monsanto. Wait, there's more. Oh, and... but wait, there's more. Oh, oh Monsanto makes them... <laughs> <laughs> I scrolled See, down. I knew what was going on. I knew where it was headed. Fucking lefties. But yeah, that's that, that's that shit, though. Like, Monsanto actually sues farmers for that shit. Like, they actually sued a farmer alleging that some of their seeds blew onto somebody else's property. Like, all right. Yeah. And after a while, it's like, for those that know the language of Emperor William, when do they just get this ruling? Again, folks, take it from children's movies. Go back, take a moment, all right, get yourself a a, a nice proper snack, you know, a light snack that you can eat through a whole film, and watch A Bug's Life, Mm. okay? Hopper didn't want it when they squatted up. There was really think about. It, there was only like three to five of them grasshoppers. Mm-hmm. There were hella ants. Mm-hmm. And it, there's hella workers in our factory. Like let's just say, like just the class divide in the factory. There's like, th- like five hundred people that work the floor. There's like seven supervisors, <laughs> nigga. Yeah. Just that class divide in and of itself. And then as you move up, right, there's less supervisors. But then there's less managers than there are supervisors. Right. And then there's less directors than there are managers. And then there's less presidents than there are directors. And then there's less owners than there are presidents and vice presidents of companies. And then there's less shareholders playing games on the stock market. As you go up the pyramid scheme of capitalism, there's less and less at the top. And they're all just sitting on you holding them up. Mm -hmm. Just... Ruffle our shoulders a little bit and shake them niggas off. Yep. Do a shoulder shake, nigga. A reverse Atlas shrugged. <laughs> Yo, worker shrug. If folks don't know the premise of the those shit, that shitty. God, I fucking hate Rand. Um, the uh, premise. You say uh, Ayn Rand? Yeah. Yeah, Ayn uh, Rand. So the shitty premise of her book is that basically, like, America goes, like, socialist in billionaires have to start paying taxes so they basically all defect and like move to South America because they don't want to play ta- pay taxes and then the country just like collapsed because they were holding the weight of the world and Atlas you know like the guy with the globe on his shoulders mm-hmm. Atlas shrugged because all the billionaires left and I'm like I'm quite sure we would be able to keep working without billionaires but that's okay yeah and didn't um did I can't remember if this was like an image on the book or if Ayn Rand actually wore like a necklace with a dollar sign medallion. It may have just been something from the book because I, folks, I don't I don't read fiction, but I listened to a Jacobin podcast about Ayn Rand. Of course, mm-hmm. I would. Like right now, I'm I'm currently listening in spots to a Jacobin program that's literally titled "Why Jordan Peterson Is Always Wrong." <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I, I like that shit so far. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I think either it was on the back of the book or Ayn Rand actually had a fucking dollar sign medallion on a necklace. Yeah. But it may be on the book. So don't quote me on that one yet. I wouldn't be surprised. I'll have to go listen to that episode Jacobin again instead of actually looking for the book myself. Uh, I think I have the book somewhere. Shit. Like a physical copy. Yeah. 
on purpose? Someone else bought it for me. I don't remember if I ever threw it away, though. Why do they hate you? Oh, because that was the creepy conservative relative that I was telling you about. The one who was, like, trying to get me to, like, become a conservative. And he's like, you're so smart. Why don't you just be a conservative? And I was like, because I care about people. And he's like, why? You'll be fine. Don't worry about them. And, like, that was his, like, pitch to conservatism. And then you, and then, <laughs> now, let, let's say you would have bought into that <laughs> bullshit. That would have been you fucking around. And then you caught histoplasmosis. <laughs> and that would have been me finding out. <laughs> that capitalism is inherently ableist. Yeah, which, like, because that was really his argument was like, but you'll be fine. You're smart enough to figure it out. Don't worry about them. And I was like, but they're people. I don't like the idea of kids going to bed hungry. Like, that's fucking terrible. What? What kind of fucking sadist? But yeah, so he was, uh. A, a, a scumbag feller. <laughs> that was the one you talked to him, or I think you heard him. He was called me, and he had that like the like the stereotypical Southern accent. Hmm. Toilers. What's that word? Workers. Okay, I'm a toiler. You are a toiler. Hell yeah, I toil about. You know, do yes. a little toiling here and there. Yes. And it's interesting, folks, because my right hand is fucked up right now. So like certain shit, like I have to write with my right hand, which is really complicated. I cannot write with my left hand. But there are other tasks that I'm doing with my left hand. And it's like, holy shit. I think, like, as times move forward, I'm going to focus more on this hand. Because apparently this side of my body doesn't know how anything works. (laughs) And so I may just deliberately use my left hand for shit moving forward for a couple years and try it out. I honestly think that's a good, like, idea. Like, you know, pseudoscience. But I feel like because it's balancing out the wear and tear a little bit more evenly. Because I, uh. I do a lot of shit ambidextrously. Okay. And I just I just feel like it's, like, less wear and tear, you know, overall. You feel like, nigga, it's... <laughs> I think it's about true than a motherfucker. <laughs> shit. Man, yeah, like, my left hand, like, uh, like ripping open uh, Gaylord boxes. Okay, I just said that out loud. Let me make sure I say this clear. In the industry I work in, we have super huge boxes. Like, like you could literally fit like um, like what uh, Phoenix and I like. Uh, what Phoenix? Phoenix is she's a fluffy fat lady. She's happy, but literally, <laughs> like you could fit like six of us in one of these fucking boxes, yeah. dead up. Like you know, a little squished together, but we could fit. These are big fucking boxes. Yeah, and they're called Gaylords. And they're taped together, and after I dump all the product out of a Gaylord into a machine system, I rip that box open and stack it so the baler can take it away. Just in case someone's tuned in for the first time and doesn't know that industry vernacular, and you thought I just said some violent homophobic shit. No, I'm talking about the boxes at work. Yes. Hold on. Look, what did Jan Loco say? You can read it better. My oh, eyes are shitty. Oh, libraries and share seats. Uh, Jan, are you in the, um, I think it's like the Native Alliance uh, Seed Keepers group? If you're not, I can add you. Hmm. Yeah. Seed Keepers. Yeah, where like basically people share, like there's an entire seed library and people share seeds with each other. Like after, because you know after you grow something and it's, you know, like mature, like a cucumber or whatever, and you cut it open and there's the seeds, you can harvest those seeds. And so people like harvest the seeds from stuff they grow and then they send them to um, other folks. So it's like an ongoing, like, you know, it's like Amish, French, Amish friendship bread, but with seeds. Folks, <laughs> 50 comrades. 
You know what? That 50 Comrades. Can we start the 50 Comrades movement? 50 Comrades movement? I'm ready for 50 Comrades. Now, remember, one of the Tupac, one of the tattoos on Tupac's body was a gun, and it said 50 niggas under it. Because his idea was to have, he just needs 50 niggas, a nigga in each state, so that they can literally build, like, their own black Congress. And he's dead. (laughs) So, just know what we're going into if we try a 50 Comrades idea. Probably won't be nearly as militant as that motherfucker was. No. Also, we're not affiliated with the Black Panthers. No. And he was actually trying to start new African Panthers in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he he was trying to leave Death Row Records and start his own label and start the new African Panthers and do more movies. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he was gunning for before he, uh, got murdered. And last comment, Laura Loco said, build that motor cortex. Yes. Is that about my left hand? Yes. You're, be ambidextrous. It's that's, good for your brain cells. Motor co- See, folks, that's why I need Fiend's Cleater here. Y'all have no idea how much shit <laughs> I would never understand. And I mean, and that's a lot of shit, folks. Like, we really should try to record every time I learn something. That's its own podcast. All right. Wine Cellar Media dot com patreon.com slash wine cellar media fund to just hold it down monthly by default uh the paypal.me slash phoenix and william is always there we could use some help with this move it's a three thousand something dollar bill moving in there and uh <laughs> take whatever nigga um and uh what there's that venmo is uh at wine cellar media and Phoenix Kaliter has that cash application which is dollar sign Phoenix Kaliter. Yes. All right. Oh, Holy hell. Yeah. Did you hell. look at the? Th- I, s- I think I sent it to you. Did you look at the? How much it is to move in? Uh, three thousand four hundred eighty-eight. Seven hundred eighty-eight. Three thousand seven hundred eighty-eight. <laughs> yup. Oh, that's a. That's a check. <sighs> it's good times. Yeah, we're about to fucking bleed that one out to go fucking move in, and then just sit there rubbing our fucking hands like, come on, bring on the next check, shit. Yeah, it's like fucking a uh, hamburger helper and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the first month. Yeah, where we are about to thug it out like some punk ass book jockeys we are. Jan Loco said, "Yes, add me, please, to the group." Got it. All right, that's going down. And also said, uh, public libraries are uh, making locations, like for seeds. Oh, for she- seed sharing? That's the shit. That's a maybe, maybe, could be, could be. All right, I'm just going to go ahead and stop the podcast audio. All right. <laughs> <laughs>